hosted by Mike the Big Cheese. For the last time It's a kind of bittersweet day Because it's our final live show And it's also our 12 year anniversary We started the show 12 years ago Today And that's why we picked it to end When I announced this in January of this year That we were going to end the show in uh, September It kind of felt like a long time away And that it would never come And I think over the last 9 months I've changed my mind about 145 times But I always said I wouldn't do like Kiss Or the Scorpions Or Motley Crue Or Ozzy And say I was going to retire and end it And then not at the last minute and come back So this is the last live broadcast Like I said I'm still going to interview bands When they have something to promote Or they come through town But instead of doing like 200 interviews a year Interviewing a lot of bands That I really don't want to interview But I have to Because it's part of what comes with being in the industry I'm just going to pick and choose my interviews And we'll just upload interviews to to my website from now on. Uh, 12 years on Blog Talk Radio. I don't think I can even get this far in here. It's such a crappy site. We transitioned to AM radio sound, but we did it and we had a great time over the years. 
interviewed thousands of guests, started out with a, a 45-minute show back in 2008, and we did a half-hour metal matinee every Wednesday. It was like a theme-type show, and we did that for about five or six years, and we just went over to the Sunday show where we did the two- or three-hour live one. We kicked things off tonight with Kiss and Shout It Out Loud off the Destroyer record from 1976, and I remember I did a metal matinee called The Soundtrack of My Life where I kind of talked about music and, you know, what it meant to me over those years. And I think we're going to kind of do that again today in a different way. That's where I got started with, you know, hard rock music. It was 1976. I was nine years old, and my next-door neighbor, Joey, who was my best friend back in the day, he had two older brothers, and they had a record collection in their basement with everything. And really, we weren't looking for heavy metal stuff. Back then, you know, comedy records were really big. Uh, Cheech and Chong, uh, Red Fox, George Carlin. They were like, you know, it was like, you know, really raunchy stuff back in the day, you know. So we like got a kick out of listening to like people cursing on record when you're nine years old. So we would sneak down into the basement and we would listen to the George Carlin records, the Cheech and Chong albums, the Red Fox records, Richard Pryor, all the funny stuff from back in the day when comedians actually put out records, right? And we came across this album and had like, it looked like a comic book come to life. It was the Destroy record. And we put it on and we were like, wow. I mean, being a nine-year-old kid, you know, into Marvel comics, seeing these guys dressed up like the demon and the star child and the cat and space Ace, it just blew us away, you know? And for the next two or three years, it was just nothing but Kiss and comedy records, mostly because we had no money to buy anything. We could only listen to what was available from my friend's brothers in the basement. They had some Led Zeppelin, some ACDC, but it didn't do anything for us. You know, Kiss was it. And in 1977, I remember buying the Kiss makeup kit, putting on our blankets as capes, doing up our faces and running around the neighborhood with our little recorder. It had like the five buttons on there, playing Kiss and roller skating through the neighborhood. It was a great time. And for the next two to three years, that was pretty much it. You know, we just listened to Kiss to like around 1980. And then I was old enough to get a paper out, saved up a few pennies because back then maybe if you were lucky, you made $2 a week if people actually paid you for your newspapers back then. And I saved up a few dollars and I went to the local record store. And I had two cousins that lived downstairs from me, much older cousins. And they would play, you know, heavy metal music also. But because of such a big age difference, they didn't like wanting to do it with me. Not in a bad way. That's just the way it was back then. You know, when you were a little kid, you didn't want to, like, hang out with the bigger kids. And they didn't want to hang out with you. But I asked my cousin, it says, you keep playing this record over and over again downstairs. I used to hear it through my bedroom window. What is that? And it's like, that's a band called Black Sabbath. I was like, all right. And I got my bike, and I drove up 86th Street where I lived to the music stop. And I went to the store. I had about 8 or $9 saved up. It took me about five or six months to save that up. And I asked the guy, I said, I'm looking for the band Black Sabbath. So he was like, you know what? This is their brand new record. It just came out not long ago. Forgive me if the timeline's off by a few weeks and months. It's a long time back, and I can't remember everything in exact detail. But he gave me the Heaven and Hell record. I ran home. I put it on, and I was a metalhead from that day on. Even though Kiss, to me, you know, I didn't know the word heavy metal until around that time. It was mostly hard rock because that's what Kiss was considered. But I remember putting on that record, and the opening chords from Neon Knights came on, and that was it for me. All right, here's some Black Sabbath Neon Knights.
There you go, Black Sabbath, Neon Nights. The first record on my own that I ever bought as a kid uh, at Music Stop on 86th Street in Brooklyn, New York, where I grew up. And like I said, the years before that, it was just kind of borrowing or taping uh, my friend's brother's Kiss records, the comedy records. And anytime I was able to get a record from my family, they always bought me these cheap K-Tel compilation records. <laughs> Came out back in the day. I remember Rick Dees with Disco Duck and the Stars on 45 and a lot of disco and the Bay City Rollers were on there. But you know what? I just was like young and I just wanted all the music I can get and I had no trouble playing that stuff until I was able to get out of my own and discover something. But playing that record, Heaven Hell, over and over again for months. I mean, I was like, this is great, but this does not sound like the band my cousin told me was Black Sabbath because he was playing the Ozzy Osbourne version of Black Sabbath. I had no idea. You know, back then there was no internet. Uh, a lot of the magazines weren't out yet. You had Cream, I think Hit Parade, maybe one other, I think Circus Magazine was the other one. And, you know, they were kind of expensive for a kid to buy. If you had a choice between a magazine or a record, you went with the record. So you didn't really, I didn't really know anything back then. So I went back to the record store and I told the guy, I says, this is a, a Black Sabbath record, but I, you know it has a different guy here named Ronnie James Dio. I'm looking for the one with the with the other singer. So he goes, "Oh, you want you know you, you want this record?" So he gave me another record. I remember what it was, but it wasn't even <laughs> it wasn't even a rock record. So after that, I started asking around, and people were like, "You know what? Go up Avenue, you in Brooklyn. There's a record store called Titus Oak, and another one called Zigzag Records." I couldn't find Zigzag Records back then because I had to go on my bike, but I did find Titus Oak. So that's why I started buying my records after that. But that summer. I went to a, a party in Long Island for one of my father's friends, and they were playing this record, and it just blew me away. I was like, that guy sounds, that voice sounds familiar. So I was like, who is this? Like, oh, it's Ozzy Osbourne. He goes, this is his brand new record, his solo record. So I was like, this is the guy who was singing with the, the band Black Sabbath. You know, that's how I kind of came to everything. You know, it was like trial and error back then. Well, I went out, and I bought that Blizzard of Oz record. First, it was on, there was a show in New York called um, Album Size Sunday. I don't remember who hosted the show, where they played an entire side of one record, new record that came out, and they played the Ozzy one. So I was like, yeah, this is definitely the one. Went to Titus Oak, told him about it. Like, yeah, he was the original singer from Black Sabbath. This is the record you want. And he gave me Blizzard of Oz. Matter of fact, it's 40 years ago this week that that record came out. I remember getting it like it was yesterday. This record, to me, changed everything for me as far as the metalhead goes. Today is probably still my favorite album of all time. Ozzy did an amazing job on this. Well, I should say Bob Daisley, Lee Kerslake, who just passed away, and Randy Rhodes did. Ozzy was probably just an observant observer back then. Uh, but the Blizzard of Oz kicked it all off. There you go. You said it all.
In another case of metal mistaken identity, that was Rainbow with Ken having here. Going back to Tidy Soak Record Store, I was telling the guy how great the Ozzy record was, and that was the guy I was looking for, you know, from the original Black Sabbath. And I bought a whole bunch of Tidy Soak had a great youth selection back then. You get an album for like a dollar ninety nine, uh, sometimes even ninety nine cents. So I bought a whole bunch of used Black Sabbath. They're mostly compilation records, probably bootlegs. Because, you know, money was limited back then, so I bought what I could. But he, he also, he goes, well, you know, if you're talking about the singer from the record I sold you, you know, the, the Rainbow record, I mean, the the Black Sabbath record, Heaven and Hell, then you want to get Rainbow. He was a singer from Rainbow. So I bought, you know, Difficult to Kill, which was the newest record at the time. Someone else was singing on that record, Joel and Turner, you know. <laughs> but you know what? It was great times back then. So 1981 comes rolling around. A little bit more money in my pocket. I finally found the holy grail of record stores in Brooklyn, Zigzag Records. And at least they, they, they kind of knew what was going on more. They had a couple of fanzines in there. I believe it was United and Phoenix were the first ones I bought. Uh, that were out there. So I picked those up. And, you know, there, I met pen pals through, that, through those magazines. And we would write letters to each other. And, you know, after a while, that started with the tape trading, which came about a year or so later in 82. I really started getting involved with tape trading. Back then, if I was buying stuff, you know, finding, reading those magazines, you would find out about a lot of bands that you didn't know anything about at all or never even heard of. And you go to Zigzag Records, and up on the wall are all these album covers. And you walk in there, and because you didn't know who the bands were, you just went by the record. You went by the album cover. Something looked cool, you kind of bought it. And the first one I bought up in that wall was Motley Crue, Live Wire. It's actually the Leather Records edition. I still have it, the original copy of it. I'm going to do a couple of songs from the 80, from 81 right now, and then we'll come back on and we'll do a little bit more chit-chatting. But these were the bands that I was buying back then. You know, 81 was an amazing year for records. Bands like Anthrax, before they became a bunch of shitheads, formed Black and Blue, Chateau, Dark Angel, Jag Panzer, Jaguar, London, Loudness, Manowar, Merciful Fate, Metallica. All these bands were just getting started that year. Whether they were just forming or playing live shows or starting to record demos, Virgin Steel, Vicious Rumors, uh, too many bands to even name. Sabotage, I believe, Sacred Rite. Queensryche, it was an amazing year for all these bands coming out, and I was about to discover most of them as the year went on, but here's a little set from the music in 81 that I picked up and bought albums by. There were a lot more than this. I can't play them all. I can't name them all. I'm going by memory right now. This was 39 years ago, but here's Motley Crue at Live Wire. <laughs>
Man, Venom in League with Satan. I remember when I bought that record, I thought I was going straight to hell. I've never heard anything like that before in my life. You know, like I said, all the albums before that were like Motley Crue, Saxon. I picked up the docking because when I went back to the record store, all I could afford was like a single, and the docking Breaking the Chains was out, so I grabbed that one. We just played it. And when I heard Venom, that blew me away. And that took me to a whole nother direction music-wise. I was looking for things that were going to get harder and heavier and faster. And, you know, 1982 comes rolling around, and I feel like uh, I'm already set and primed in the scene. I know more of what's going on. I was picking up some of the little fanzines that I can get from the local record store, making pen pals, so we were writing with each other, talking about bands from each other's states and what was going on. It was a great time. I feel like from 81 to 83, 84 was like the prime time for me in heavy metal because I started to discover all of these new bands back then. The new wave of British heavy metal was taking off, even though it really wasn't known as that back then. This great underground scene with bands that you never thought would make it or be big. You just felt like they were yours, you know, and a lot of bands came out of that scene back in the day. Now it's 1982, and, you know, if Venom weren't heavy and hard enough and satanic enough, I see this record cover with a nun being burned at the stake in black and white on the wall at the record store, and I go and I pick up Merciful Fate, and this is Nuns Have No Fun.
know, that was the album that kind of brought me to the priest camp. Screaming for Vengeance from back in 1982. After that, I kind of went back through that back catalog and picked up all of those records. I tell you, when I, I don't, I didn't buy the Accept record. My friend Eddie did. He picked that one up, and I remember putting it on his house, and we were just blown away when Fast as a Shot came out. I had never heard anything played that fast before in my life. I was like, holy crap. I mean, you know, and it became a lifelong Accept fan since that day. Around the end of 82, I was I was trading some demo tapes with a few people. I had one or two uh, pen pals that I was trading with. I was buying them from bands that I had met, like at shows or at record stores. So, you know, 83, you know, Metal Forces comes out. It's, to me, the you know, the holy grail of metal magazines. Focused strictly back then on the underground scene. I remember the first issue, it was Dave Murray quits Iron Maiden. It was a great title to get people to buy a new issue, even though it wasn't true. But, you know, it was a way of getting people in. And I remember putting a pen banger ad in there. And after that, I had dozens of pen pals. I was trading with a shitload of people in 1983. And when I started up this show, we did the Demolition segment, which was a tribute to the articles, you know, the the segment in the magazine where they did the Demolition with a featured band demo tape. So we kind of did that here on this show for a long time. I used to put a link to the demo we featured that week up for download, or you can go to my site and get it. Uh, but, you know, a lot of those links started getting taken down back then when people were reporting them. So we just kind of eliminated them all, and we stopped the segment after that. But in 1982... I traded demo tape with somebody from out west, and it was Metallica, and I was just blown away. I thought Except was fast, and I heard Fast as a Shock. When Hit the Lights came on, that just blew me away, put me to a whole other universe, and I became a major tape trader after that. So I'm going to do a little demo tape uh, segment right now. I mean, we're like kind of in a timeline right now between 82 and 83. Only the Metallica demo tape is from 82. The rest are from all over the 80s. But I just want to do a little tribute to the demolition segment here and to that great magazine, Metal Forces, which brought tons of band into the fold for me. So let's start with Metallica. Hit the lights.
we did a little demo segment over there. You know, the sound quality is bad enough on here as it is, but playing those old demo tapes just makes it that much better. We started with Metallica, Hit the Lights, Tommy, my old co-host, Ben, Tempest, Unknown Task, great band out of Brooklyn. We had a great metal scene in Brooklyn back there. There a lot of bands, Tempest, Chaos, Lace. Uh, who else did we have back then? <sighs> Too many of them. Nightmare. There were so many great bands. Right after that, Valkyrie with Nightmare and Jackhammer, Live by the Sword. That was the first demo tape I ever purchased from a band. You know, Jackhammer years later became Whiplash. They put out two demos under the name Jackhammer, and then it became Whiplash when Tony Potaro joined the band. I remember going to a show at Lemoore, and you know, like, I used to talk about this band Jackhammer. Nobody ever heard of them. <laughs> and I saw a guy there with a jacket on with a Jackhammer patch. And I was like, holy crap. And I says, are you with the Jackhammer? He's like, I'm the drummer for the band. He goes, we don't exist anymore. We, we, we changed our name to Whiplash. You know, keep your eye out. We're recording a really great demo. You know, and it was Tony Scaglione, the drummer from uh, Whiplash. Got his name and number and uh, kept in touch. And he gave me a copy of that tape when it came out. And, you know, Whiplash or Whiplash. That's all I'm going to say. All right, 1983, like I says, Metal Forces comes out. Getting to discover a lot of these great underground bands, especially the bands from England, you know, part of that new wave of British heavy metal scene. Let's play a few bands from there. Here's Satan, Blades of Steel.
know, it wasn't all about the United Kingdom in 1983. Our friends up north, Exciter. I remember getting their demo tape, uh, World War Three, believe in '82. So when I saw this record in the record store, I had to have it. '83 was the first time I ever went to a concert by myself without anybody taking me. It was to Lamore to see Quiet Riot. Talos opened up. It was a long night. I wound up getting an ass kicking from my father when I got home because I thought we'd be home at 11. Not realizing that Lamore, the headline maker, come on one, two o'clock in the morning. But it was well worth it because I got to meet the band before the show and hang out with them a little bit, and it was a great time. And I you know it was the first of many times going back there. Uh, we had to get snuck into the back door because we were underage back then. I think the drinking age in New York might have still been 18, or maybe it just turned 21. I don't remember. But we gave the kid who worked backstage a few dollars, and he snuck me in. My other two friends I went with bailed out because they didn't want to get in trouble by the pants and get home late, so I was by myself in there. And I had a great time. The guy says, whatever you do, stay away from the bar and just stand in the corner. The good old days when people looked out for one another. <laughs> I loved it. And we went back to Lamar many times after that with our fake IDs that we got from Butterfly, a place in the village. We used to make up these fake college IDs. I look at you know, I still have mine. Looking at it now, I'm like, this is the fakest thing you could possibly ever have. But they didn't care back there. If you showed them something, they were happy and they let you in. They wanted people in that club spending money. You know, on beer, on liquor, and on the door. So they didn't really care. But, you know, when they started cracking down, uh, they wouldn't take those IDs anymore. My friend Edmund came up with a great idea. He took our birth certificates, you know, because back then, at least here in New York, they were black, white print on it. He just put correction ribbon in it. He just blacked out the (laughs) – we made a copy of it. We blacked out the information, like the birth date, and he used correction ribbon to type in a new birth date that made us, you know, 18 or whatever the age was back then. And that got us into Lamar's until we were old enough to actually get in on our own. So it was a great time back then in 1983. All right, we know what? It's 1984 right now. Another great year for metal. All these bands that came out in 81, 80, they were starting to put out records finally. I was at Lamar pretty much every Friday and Saturday night. Then they started doing Thursdays. There was a battle of the bands they used to do. I remember the first battle of the bands, Carnivore was on there. Nobody ever heard of them before. They would come out in their lines cloth. They looked like, you know, a scene out of Conan the Barbarian. You know, throw meat out into the audience and everything. It was pretty cool, you know, especially when you're a kid. And a band named Blessed Death was on that battle of the bands. These guys looked like they came out of the backwoods of Deliverance. I never forget it when they hit the stage. They, the singer Larry just scared me looking at them. But they blew me away. They were such a great band. And you know what? I started talking to them. And I believe one of their girlfriends was there. I was talking with her. And she introduced me to the band. And I became pretty good friends with them after that. And I, I videotaped one of their shows. I went and rented a video machine and a recorder out. It was like this big production. And I stood at the back of the morning. I videotaped the whole show. And they used that videotape to get them a record contract with Megaforce Records back in the day. I wish I would have made a copy of it. I was lucky I even was able to videotape. I had no idea how to do it, but I said I could, so I had to follow through. But it wound up working out because, like I said, the band got signed to Megaforce. And that was also the first year that I ever interviewed a band. My friend was writing a magazine in Connecticut called Buried Alive. And uh, she had this great magazine, and I interviewed Nasty Ronnie. Somebody I knew gave me his phone number, and I had interviewed him for about a half hour on the phone. I wrote everything down, and I sent it over to the magazine. And that was the first time I ever interviewed anybody, even though it was over the phone and it was written. And I, I'm not a very good writer, but, you know, they fixed it up to make it look better. But 84, another great year for metal. I remember getting this record, Jack Panzer, Symphony of Terror.
This is Neil Turbin from Death Riders, and you're listening to Heavy Metal Mayhem Radio Show on Blog Talk Radio with Mike the Big Cheese. Don't forget to be fierce and stay thrashing and stay metal thrashing. were really good. I know they still got a lot of fans, but uh, nothing beats Fistful of Metal. It's the greatest record, in my opinion, of all time, especially by the band. Love that album. I remember seeing them at the Roseland Ballroom. I believe it was in the summer of '84 uh, uh, with Raven and Anthrax. That was the show. I was it that show? Yeah, I think that was the last show that Neil Turbin did with the band. They fired him right after the show. Metallica got signed to Elektra. And uh, Raven got signed to Atlantic. That's when music started getting big. Bands were, these underground bands were now on major labels. And it was, you know, just the scene was just exploding in 84 and it was taking off. 1985 comes around. A band was demo tape I had from a year or two before that. Puts out their debut record, Attacker. 
man, do I love these guys. And, you know, Battle of Hell's Deep came out in 85, and I absolutely loved it. Mike Sabatini was the first guest we ever had on the show in 2008. The band had just parted ways with Bob Mitchell, I think, for the second time after the Unknown record. And I didn't know if they were ever going to do anything again after that. But about a year or so later, I said they had to play the show at Dingbatch in New Jersey. They have a new singer, Walter Figueroa, a young kid. And I reached out to Mike about coming on here to promote it. And he was the first interview I ever did on the show. And we spoke for like an hour when we've been good friends ever since that day. I've had Mike and the other guys from Attacker on the show on and off for years. Bob Mitchell, who was a singer on the first record and a couple of the albums in the middle years, is also a great friend of the show. We've had Bob on here for a long time. We've talked about every band and project that he's been in and a part of. And I'm going to talk to him real soon about a new band he's in. Let's go back to that first Attacker record, His Disciple.
truly one of the greatest metal bands to come out of New York City, if not anywhere, Cities. That actually wasn't even... The, the, the Annihilation Absolute EP came out in 1985, but Cruel wasn't on that. It came out a year later, so I kind of crossed years there, but I really wanted to hear Cruel C tonight, so we put it on. I was kind of disappointed when the album came out, because if you, if you saw Cities Live back in the day, or if you had their demo tapes, they were such a harder, faster, and heavier band. The album was very polished, and I get what they were going for at the time, uh, but it's still a great record. I mean, if you could find the pick it up, I, I have the original vinyl... I also picked up the CD years and years later. You know, 1985 to me, you know, looking back on it now, it was like a changing point uh, for me in the world of heavy metal. You know, the scene that started five years early for me was kind of starting to fade away. Hair metal, which which was getting really big in 85 and taking off, was causing a lot of the other bands who were playing traditional power metal to kind of go the hair metal route. Rob Halford was running around, and you know, in colored leather. Ozzy was wearing those, you know, those sequin jester outfits. Everybody tried to glam it up and go hair and, and lighten up their sound, and it was kind of a disappointing thing for me. And I was always looking for something that was harder, heavier, and faster, you know. So in 1985, I started to discover the hardcore scene. I was hanging out at uh, Brooklyn College. Don K had a college radio show there. My friend Terry. Uh, it was like an intern for him. He helped him out with the program. He did like a two-hour metal show, a three-hour metal show once a week on a Tuesday night. So I used to go down to the radio station to hang out with him. And I got to meet a lot of great bands at the college radio station. I remember one night going to pick up At War, and they came in from Virginia because they were doing an interview and bringing them to the show. I had such a great time there. And one day the, the program director for the college station comes up. He's like, you know, my younger brother, he plays drums. He's in a band. He's looking for guys to play with him in the band. I think he has a guitar player. He goes, he's into that kind of music you're into. Now, the program director could, could have cared less about heavy metal. <laughs> he just, you know, figured that we look like a bunch of punks and, you know, his brother looked the same way, so maybe he did it. So I met his brother, Dave, and he's like, I have a guitar player named Andy. We need a bass player and a singer for our band. You know, we're a hardcore band. And I just started getting into that music. I just saw Agnostic Front at the Ritz, I believe it was, at that time. And the Bad Brains were there, and it was such a great time. So I was like, all right, I says, I'll be the singer, because my friend Terry says he wanted to be the bass player. So he calls up like a week later, goes, I can't get a bass guitar. My father won't buy me one. So I asked my father if he could buy me a bass guitar. That was probably after going for 100 different musical lessons over the years. But I came home one day from work, and there was a used bass where the strings were about three inches off the neck because the bass neck was so warped on the bass. But he bought me a used bass, and he bought me uh, a used amp. So I became the bass player. I had no idea how to play the instrument, knew how to hold the damn thing. But I went down to the rehearsal, and the guitar player, Andy, who was in the band at the time, uh, showed me how to you know, play, and I was like just watching him play. And then about six months later, because Andy was also a drummer, he quit the band because he wanted to play drums in another band. And Andy wanted to play in a lot of big bands, you know, hardcore bands in the day. He was more into the industrial sound of music. So that's when Mike Fringo came into the group, and five, four of us really formed Stillborn. And that was my band for like five or six years. We had a great time playing out in the scene, you know, CBGBs. We played all over the place, up and down the East Coast, and we loved it. Had a blast. Also, 1985, that was the first time I did an interview live in person. Faithful Breath were coming to play in uh, New York City. It was the first time coming to America. They were a big band, well-known in Germany. I think Golden Glory was the record they were promoting at the time. And Tommy's band, Tempest, got on the bill with them at some little club in Staten Island called Club Intimate. It was a tiny little shithole. You know, we didn't know at the time because we were never there before until we saw it. And I remember telling Tommy, Tommy, these guys are big in Germany. This place is going to be packed. 
to me, it was going to be Tempest's biggest show. We got there, there's like 20 people there. And I remember interviewing the band, and it was so awkward because they couldn't understand me with my heavy Brooklyn accent. I couldn't understand them with their German accent. But it was funny. I don't even know how long the interview went for. I think I actually have it on tape on here. If you want to play a few minutes of it and see how it goes. I haven't heard this in probably 30-something years, but this was me interviewing Faithful Brett that had to be maybe 17 years old at the time. I'm not even sure. But uh, here you go. Let's listen to it for a few minutes. How long has the band been together? It's been like 11 years now. Yeah. So that's what? the only foundation member in time, you? The only reason I remember that? No. And, uh, I've, I've been in the band since five years, and the basement since one and a half year, and the second guitarist since uh, three months. Yeah. How many arms do you guys have out of that? Six. Six arms? So far. What's your favorite one out of all of us? My favorite yeah. is the uh, the Golden Glory album. One of the biggest selling ones. Yeah. yeah. So what do you think of the Tour of America so far? What? Tour of America. Yeah, I hope so. In the near future. It's <laughs> nice going to do so far. Huh? So far, it's not too good, huh? No. Uh, it's better than Germany? The guys yeah. out there? Yeah. Yeah. More popular? Yeah. We yeah. might even cut through in Germany. How do they try to act over there? They charge me act over there, you know, they're really into the band and the music and everything. The crowds in Germany, like they're really into the music more than over here? No, I think the kids is the kids is the same. All over the place. But they have to know. Yeah. The band. There's not that many around here that came out this way, you know. No, because uh they told us about because of the drinking age? Yeah, they raised it up now at 21, and most of the fans are 21, and they can't get into the club. Yeah, yeah. So they have a hard time, especially right now. It's a small club, it's not that yeah, popular. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's hard to get a crowd down here. Yeah, you know? But this was more as a tryout to see if how the people reacted to the music. Oh, you look great. You just gotta get to the bigger club, like the Lamores yeah. and the Beacons, the bigger theaters. You can really In principle, we, sh- we should have played Lamores. Yeah. But there was a problem. Because Motorhead came back again. Oh, well, yeah, I can understand that. Like, is there a new album coming out soon? By the band? New record? Yeah, new record will be out, is out now in Europe, will be out next week in uh, in the States. So what label is that on? It's, it's on Ambush, new label, but it's for the moment distributed in the States by importers. Like the main import, yeah. important tracks, gem and things like that. What's the name of the album? What's the name of the album? Skull. Skull, huh? Yeah. How many songs are on that? Are they in the vein of the old stuff? Stuff I have? Yeah. You more like the old stuff? Like Golden Glory? Yeah. That's it's a pity we don't have a spare album for the moment. Well, that was about it. I think there's like another minute of this. <laughs> that was like seven years old interviewing this band, you know, trying to remember everything about them, you know. <laughs> it was a fun night and I had a good time. But like I said, it's 1985. I was looking for bigger and better things, faster and harder. Metal wasn't doing it for me anymore because, like I said, hair metal was starting to get really big. And, you know, all the bands that I used to be in love with started changing the sound and the style, which I really didn't like at the time. So I went to the hardcore scene, and I became a big fan. And for the next five or six years, I mixed my metal and hardcore together. So let's do a little hardcore set. Here's Agnostic Front, Friend of Foe.
The hair metal scene of the mid-80s was too much for you. The New York City hardcore scene was taken off. Crumb Suckers, Mr. Hyde, and right before that, the Cro-Mags with Malfunction. You have two versions of the Cro-Mags going around today. Harley finally got the name back. He sued for it. So you have Harley playing out as the Cro-Mags, and then you have John Joseph playing out as the Cro-Mags. I don't remember what they are. They're using initials mixed in with it. It's just another one of those uh, things. You have multiple bands using the same name with different members. But you know what? In 1987... Even if you weren't into the hardcore scene or the hair metal scene, thrash metal, death metal was starting to take off. Testament released their debut record. Today, it's a class at The Legacy. Let's play something off that record, going to a little slaughter. I'm going to jump right into 1988 right after this. I'm burning the first time at night 
Hotter and heavy as the 80s went on. You know, it was 1988. My band used to rehearse in a studio on uh, Kings Highway. I can't remember the name of it. Maybe it was Kingsway Studios. I don't remember. There were a couple of studios in the area at the time, and Tommy used to work there on the weekends. So I used to go hang out with him. We'd watch TV in the room while bands were rehearsing in the two different studios. And he gives me these two CDs, and he's like, I, I just picked these up. They're new bands. He goes, Both bands got like black musicians in them. And that was like, you know, you never heard of like black guys playing heavy metal before, even though it was Black Death. You know, Sound Barrett, a whole bunch of other bands in the early 80s. But he's like, you got to check these guys out. So it was King's X and Living Color. And I fell in love with those two CDs at the time and have been big fans with the band ever since then. I wish I could have gotten somebody from Living Color on the show over the years. I was going to interview Corey uh, a couple of months ago, uh, but they wanted to give me the other Corey for this new band that they're in, <laughs> not the right one. So that never happened. But let's do a little Living Color, and we'll follow it up with some Queensryche from the Operation Mind Crime record. That most people consider to be the pinnacle of, uh, you know, concept records from back in the day. Definitely a fine Queensryche record. We've had Jeff Tate on the show many times. He was a little dicky the first couple of times we interviewed him. But once they kicked him out of Queensryche, he kind of mellowed down a little bit. And I guess got that rock star attitude out of him. But uh, he wound up being a pretty nice guy to talk to towards the end. But let's do some liver color. We'll follow that with Queensryche. <laughs> 
All right, we're starting to get towards the end of the decade here. You know, when I started this show, we had about 15 or 16 listeners, like, you know, the first week. It was mostly my friends and family that were tuning in. This show sort of came out of Tommy's show. Tommy found this site, Block Talk Radio. says, listen, it's a site you can call in using a cell phone or, you know, your house phone, and, and you can talk. Why don't we do it? So he had a show called Metalheads United. We did, I think, one show, and then he never wanted to come back on and do another one because he was always too lazy and too busy. I don't know what it is, but Tommy knows I love him. So I asked him if he didn't mind if I carried it on, so I changed the name to Heavy Metal Mayhem because I was listening to Cardiac Arrest by Jag Pans, and that line came out, so I named the show after that line. And I kept it going ever since then, and I've had a blast doing it. But about a year or so ago, I, I started losing interest, you know, and I kept going because Iman talked me into it, so I gave it one more year, and this is it. So we're going to end up with this decade now, 1980s, the best decade ever for heavy metal music. And I loved it, and I lived through it, and I enjoyed every moment of it. We're going to close out 1989 right now. Then we're going to play a few new songs by old bands that are still pumping out the albums. And then we're going to say goodbye. So uh, 1989, you know, uh, one of my favorite guests to have on here has got to be Jeff Waters. We've spoken to Jeff two or three times, I think. And all you have to do to Jeff is say hello and an hour and a half later, he'll stop talking. He's the greatest guest to interview because you never have to say nothing to him. He just tells you everything that you want to know. You don't have to ask some questions. So off their debut record, here's YT, WTYD.
Fraser by Doro Pesh. Doro released her first solo record under the name Doro in 1989. Before that, she was a part of Warlock. Even though it was mostly her band towards the end, she put out her debut record. And also in 89, Kurt Vanderhoff left Metal Church. They put out their first record of Blessed in the Skies without him. It was also the first record with Mike Howe on vocals. A lot of stuff happened in 89. And that was the end of the decade for me. I got a job at Con Edison where I've been for the last 32 years. We've done this show for the last 12. We're going to play one or two more songs. We're going to wrap it up here tonight. Two of my favorite, you know, Doro, I've interviewed about 11 times on the show. Her and Chuck Billy have been on here more than anybody else. We've both been on about 11 times. Steve Gaines from Anger Resort. Steve was the lead singer in Abattoir back in the day. He was a part of Bloodlust and a lot of other bands. They were supposed to do an Abattoir Bloodlust set at the Rage of Armageddon Festival this year, but it was canceled due to the COVID thing. There's no shows taking place here in New York right now. So hopefully next year that will happen, and I'll get out to go see those guys play live. So we're going to do a little Anger Resort, a little Clovenhoof, and then one more tune, and we're going to wrap it up here tonight.
Lovenhofer Bedlam. It's time to wrap it up here tonight. We're going to play one more song. We're going to close it out. It's been a great 12 years. That's all I have to say. I've had a blast this whole time. You know, we've got a couple of famous people. We have world-renowned author. Gerard is in the chat tonight, by the way. Uh, more importantly, he's a guitar player for America from back in the day. And American Idol, Ryan Harmon. I met Ryan 12 years ago when him and Alex were doing a show called Dio Priest and Block Talk Radio. And I was amazed at this kid's knowledge of music in general. Ryan is a big country music fan, and he's an amazing guitar player and singer. Check out his podcast, American Born and Country Fried. It's a great show. All right, well, listen, you know, I've, like I said, I've had a lot of fun over the last 12 years. Before we sign off for the last time, I just want to thank a few people. Tommy Flanger for planting the seeds of this show many, many years ago with this Metalhead United podcast. We talked about that a little earlier. And all the great industry people that have, you know, worked with me and stood with me this last decade plus, especially Dustin Hardman, who was with Frontier when I met him back then. He's with ASM and quite a few other labels that he represents, and I'll still be working with Dustin. The live show is over, but I'm still going to continue to interview bands after this and place them up on the website, you know, as I do them. Instead of interviewing 150 bands a year, maybe we'll do one a month and put it up there just to keep active in the scene and everything. I want to thank Muncie from Skateboard Marketing, Jeremy over at Heaven Hell Records, we've worked with for a long time, Metalville, Pure Steel, Century Media, AFM, High Roller, E1, Nuclear Blast, Massacre. There's so many to name. I know I'm going to forget most of them, but those are the ones that, you know, mean the most to me, and I've worked with them over the years. In the chat room, Iman and John, who've hung out with me for years now. We don't get a lot of people hanging out in the chat, even though we have thousands of listeners. You know, five or six years ago, we were getting between twenty-five and 35,000 listeners. We're down to about 4,000 a week now. You know, people say, why don't you want to do the show anymore, even though you have so many listeners still. My heart just hasn't been in it for the last two years. You know, I have a full-time job. I work at night. I'm getting ready to retire in a year and a half. I babysit my granddaughter during the week, and I'm just exhausted. It's more than just going on the air for two hours. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes work that takes place, you know, Monday to Saturday to get this thing up and running, and it's just getting harder and harder. So uh, that's why we're going to pack it in. Like uh, Joe Elliott says, it's better to burn out than to fade away, even though I think it was Jimmy Dean, James Dean, that said that originally. That's from the Def Leppard song. So I want to thank all those people, and especially Iman, who week after week after week comes here and hangs out with me. Never misses a week. I love him for that, and I'm going to miss hanging out with you guys every week. But we'll keep in touch. We'll never let it go. We'll still be together. And more importantly, I have to thank my family and especially my wife who's put up with my shit. Never mind for the last 30 years with the 12 that I've been doing this show. Changing and rearranging family affairs and dinners on a Sunday so I can come down here and do it and everybody would be gone by then. I really do appreciate everything she does for me. So it's time to wrap it up here tonight. Listen, everything has a shelf life. Everything comes to an end. Nothing lasts forever. And this show is just one of them. And I've been blessed to do it for the last 12 years and have you people listening with me and enjoy me. A kid from Brooklyn with a heavy Brooklyn accent that talks a million miles an hour. You've dealt with it for the last 12 years. Thank you very much. Keep your eye on the website, you know, because like I said, I'm going to keep interviewing bands and putting them up there. I'm just going to semi-steal a quote from Johnny Carson, who to me was the greatest interview ever and hosted one of the best shows in the world at tonight's show. It has been an honor and a privilege to spend my Sunday nights with you. For the first time, I won't be saying I'll see you next week. I'm just going to say goodbye and good night, everybody. <laughs>